Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another great episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. We were off for two weeks working on a few projects, so more on that in the coming weeks. Um, This week, though, I talk with Dr. Colin Gerald Associate Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at NYU, about his book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. I recorded this podcast before we had the monster heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia. Why is this relevant, you might ask? Well, methane is probably the most consequential greenhouse gas, and that is what is involved in most cases with extraction using hydraulic fracking. Whether we like it or not, believe it or not, climate change is here, and methane is a big part of that consequence, since it is a much more potent global warming gas. What Colin uncovered in his book, and is something we all know too well, and are seeing play out not only at a micro scale in towns, but also on the global stage. We, as humans, are trading short-term profits for long-term consequences that destroy our lives and those of other species. More on that at the end. Before we get to Colin, don't forget, you can check out the show notes at jenniferverdelin.com or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. All right, everybody, I'm excited to welcome Colin Gerald Mack to the show. We're going to talk about his book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. Welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Oh gosh, you know, I, I, we were talking before uh, we started recording that um, I, I really appreciate your writing and it makes me want to be a better writer. And some of your work is at this intersection of human and other animal. Um, and that's not what we're talking about today necessarily. We're talking about your book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell. And that's centered, though, still around a pretty contentious environmental issue. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, how did you end up focusing your work, contemplating the relationships we have with the natural world? Mm. Well, that's, you know, I've, I mean, I've been vegan for, for 21 years, gosh. Yeah. And vegetarian before that in high school. And that was out of animal welfare, you know, uh, animal ethics issues. Uh, and I guess I would trace that to being very engaged from the time I was in high school in a lot of political activism and getting into punk rock music and particularly that brand of punk rock music, hardcore, where I first heard people uh, singing and talking about these issues. And so uh, I think that 
that's where I would, I guess, begin it. Um, it's not to say that it was always front and center in my academic life. I got my PhD in sociology, uh, but I went into the PhD at City University thinking that I was going to do a thesis on Latin American political economy. I'd spent a year backpacking around South America. Um, but I, I, in my second year of grad school, I took a, a course, urban ethnography, where we had to do research in the city. And so I was doing, I figured, I, you know, I was very enamored. I had just read The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. And I was really interested in like urban space and parks. And so I began this little project for that class on public space. And uh, one of the things that I definitely did not expect, but that became front and center in that work was pigeons. Uh, at the time, the city criminalized pigeon feeding. They started issuing these nuisance citations for people feeding pigeons. There was this huge like public campaign. All of a sudden, it seemed like pigeons were were seen as like the number one problem facing the city almost. And I, as a sociologist, I thought like, what's this really about? Like, are they really that much of a of a of a biological threat, or is there something else going on here about? how animals come to be understood and constructed as a pest. And what does that say about the way we think about and either make room or deny room for animals in the city? So that's how I started on this path. And that was actually my dissertation in my first book, uh, you know, thinking about pigeons as a way to thinking about animals in the city and the way that we relate to nature in the city. Um, and that, that got me a job at NYU in two departments, sociology and environmental studies. And that that focus and that joint appointment has sort of kept me thinking about relationships with the non-human world, whether non-human animals or the environment more broadly. So then along comes fracking and really what led to this book and led to this interest is two things. One, in 2011, a while ago now, but I'm from the state of Pennsylvania and this, this report came out before fracking, when fracking was just taking off, but before a lot of people, at least me, really knew how consequential it was going to be. And there was this report that said that Pennsylvania was poised to be the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. And I just thought, geez, that sounds really big, shocking, consequential. What's that all about? Uh, and then at the same time, my adopted state of New York, where I've been teaching at NYU since 2009, was contemplating a ban on fracking. And it was practically all my environmental studies students wanted to talk about. They wanted to talk about fracking in class. They were uh, organizing, act, you know, like buses to Albany and activist events to, to push for a ban, which New York State implemented in 2014. And so this was just something that all of a sudden was entering my life from both directions. My home state was poised to become this extractive epicenter and all my students wanted to talk about it. And, uh, you know, I, I just decided that, that this ought to be my next project. And I'm in, in my work, I'm always, I'm more of an anthropologist really. So it's like, in, I, instead of taking this broad macro view, I want to understand these big issues through a focused study of living for a long period of time with people that are enmeshed in these issues. So I decided I had a sabbatical coming up and I said, I'm going to move to a place that was in the most, what was in the most drilled County of Pennsylvania the year before I moved there, which is like Homie County. And so I picked to move to uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania to write this book. Yeah. I mean, that's, so I, I want to, you know, that helps answer, like, cause I was curious, how did you pick this place, right. To yeah. go to, um, before we keep going, I think it's helpful because I know what fracking is. You know what sure. fracking is and I'm your students, you know, but I, you know, I want to make sure sometimes that 
when we start talking about things that people know what we're talking about and, and may, people may have heard, oh, fracking is okay. Fracking is bad. We don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, yeah. What is fracking? And, uh, you know, it, it's also known as hyd- hydraulic fracturing. Um, right. And so kind of what is it used for? And, and what do we mean when we say fracking? Great question. And good to clear up before we dive into it. Um, so fracking in the narrow in industry sense refers to one part of the process of extracting oil and gas from shale rock, which is hydraulic fracturing, which is the hydro, which is when you pump down at incredibly high pressure, millions of gallons of water, mostly water mixed with sand and some chemical agents to break open the rock and release the gas and oil that is trapped inside of shale rock. Now, when we talk about fracking in everyday life, we're usually talking about the entire process of which hydraulic fracturing is a part. So shale rock is buried a mile or more underneath the ground. And if you just drilled vertically and poked a hole right into it, you wouldn't get much of the gas or oil. It's not like when you poke the rock, it all flows out. It's trapped, frozen in the rock. So what you do is you drill vertically down. And when you hit the shale rock with a remote control drill bit, you drill horizontally along the shale layer. And they can do that for about two miles now. So that's horizontal drilling. And so so you, they drill horizontally through the shale and then hydraulically fracture it. So usually when we say fracking in everyday terms, we're talking about horizontal drilling paired with hydraulic fracturing. And, and, and that's really, and that's really the thing, the combination of those two technologies that allowed the so-called fracking boom to take off this century. We've been experimenting with hydraulic fracturing for decades, right? Like this, this, you know, breaking it open with rock, but it wasn't until it was married with horizontal drilling, which really only happened in the two thousands that it became commercially viable. And so that's what we mean when we talk about fracking. Okay. And now can you give us a little insight into why it is controversial? So we've been doing it for a long time, but only, uh, uh, in this horizontal way for a couple of decades. And do we know, um, what it does to the environment at this point, or is that still like a up in the air kind of issue? You know, I think it's akin to climate change uh, in that it's we know we know what the effects are now it's all the quibbling about you know about degrees and and, and particular rates of of potential contamination but uh it's controversial you know it really became controversial uh, as a lot of people probably well know when the documentary gasland came out uh which memorably featured a faucet that the owner of the house could light on fire, they alleged because of methane contamination. So natural gas is methane. So you could frack for oil or gas. In Pennsylvania, they're fracking for gas. Uh, and so, so uh, you know, and so, so the idea was that you drill through, you often have to drill through water tables. Anybody who lives in a rural area is drinking water from that they take out of a private water well directly from underground sources. They're not getting it piped in. And so, so, so when you drill through a water table, uh, you know, the industry is required to put concrete casing and metal tubes, which is supposed to prevent the flow of methane or other contaminants in the drinking water sources. But after Gasland, it became controversial for the idea that it could contaminate water. And, 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 you know, and a lot of people I've even, you know, been raised alarms that it could contaminate major aquifers that supply water for millions of people. To be honest, that level of contamination hasn't happened. 
Uh, I don't know of major aquifers being contaminated. That said, individual water wells being contaminated, absolutely. And in the book, I follow eight families that this happened to that are confirmed that they, that they had baseline water tests that demonstrated there was not methane in their water. They wound up with explosive levels of methane and two of the households wound up with other chemicals as well. And so that's probably the biggest reason why it was originally controversial. Uh, I would say more recently, it's controversial because of the climate change impacts. Uh, you know, now, you know, in the beginning, there was this idea that, it, well, if you're fracking for gas, gas, gas burns cleaner than coal. And so while it's still burning, you know, producing carbon emissions, it can be a so-called bridge fuel. Um, now, you know, the gas industry is building a lot of new pipelines and, and uh, compressor stations and liquefied natural gas facilities, which there are sunk costs if they now transition to renewables. So, so you know, they're, ac they're actually committing us to fossil fuel extraction for a long period of time. Methane itself is a far more potent gas than, than carbon. And so a lot of methane is leaked at various stages of the fracking production process. And so even that, the sort of greenhouse gas gains uh, are, are, are probably uh, elusive. And so I think more recently, it's become controversial, uh, this idea that it's a bridge fuel at all, and that it's really a bridge to nowhere or to global warming. Right. Okay. So now in, in up to heaven and down to hell, you you chose, you explained why you chose this area, right? Cause it's one of the most heavily drilled mm -hmm. areas in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. What led you to settle in Williamsport in particular? Was yeah. there anything sure. that drew you to that particular community? Yes. Lycoming County, I should say there are other counties in Pennsylvania that have more gas wells, but Lycoming County was the most heavily drilled county the year before I moved there. Okay. So what I thought is, well, then there's a lot of action right now. I didn't want to move to a place where almost all of the leasing and drilling had already happened. Okay. So in a way it came later to, to the Williamsport area. So really Williamsport itself is a small city and I chose it because it's the, where I could get an apartment. I mean, if I, you, it's hard to find a place to rent in the countryside. Um, and, but, but that's not the only reason. I mean, Williamsport, itself is it's small, but it's big enough that it became the economic and administrative hub for fracking in all of North central Pennsylvania. So Halliburton built a huge 24 acre facility there. Halliburton's the largest oil field services provider, um, other industry, other, you know, petroleum groups like Anadarko and Chesapeake had offices downtown. And so this was a really strategic place. Most of the people I, I focus on in the book don't live in Williamsport because I was interested primarily in people who own land and leased it for drilling. They're not drilling in downtown Williamsport, but you know, you go five minutes in any direction and it's country roads, farm, you know, farms that may be 400 acres. And so, so that, you know, so it was a really strategic from that point. There also is a kind of at least narratively poetic uh, reason that helps with the choice is that Williamsport in the late 1800s was the lumber capital of the world. I actually lived in a former so-called lumber baron's mansion. Uh, you know, there was this region where uh, uh, there was a street called Millionaire's Row. Uh, it was claimed that Williamsport uh, milled the most board feet of lumber anywhere in the world for a span of 30 years, and that it had the most millionaires per capita in uh, in the world. And so, so on West Fort on Fourth Street in in Williamsport, you can still see these beautiful mansions that the lumber barons built. And so that's not why I chose it, but there is this kind of interesting history where at a moment in time, this was an extractive epicenter and that, you know, and certainly the oil and gas industry played on that a bit. Like this could bring Williamsport back to those glory days. You know, um, the last thing I'll say is I admit that, uh, you know, 
I'm from Pennsylvania. So I had an interest in studying Pennsylvania. My wife was still living in New York city. So I wasn't going to move to say Texas or North Dakota or Colorado, where I also could have written about fracking, but I would have been very, very far from a a reasonably angry wife. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, there's always that to consider. You mentioned that historically Williamsport was sort of this booming um, sawmill Mm -hmm. town with its uh, reliance on timber extraction and that ultimately collapsed. So prior to uh, the oil and gas industry kind of coming in and essentially, you know, playing on that history, walk me through a little bit of the economic sort of history after the timber industry collapsed Mm -hmm. of this area. Yes. So after the timber industry collapsed, you know, Williamsport didn't have a whole lot going on Uh, and it remained, you know, in lost population, it remained a pretty small, uh, mostly uh, inconsequential from the perspective of the national economy. Um, It did, you know, between World War One and World War Two, it always remained small. I mean, Williamsport at its peak had 45,000 residents. Uh, but, but, at, but, you know, but it, it became a sort of m- little industrial powerhouse. It had, you know, Bethlehem steel had a, had a facility there, a lot of other manufacturing. Um, I can't remember which one, but a manufacturer of engines for planes, which was, you know, it was stationed with cows there. Uh, and so there was a period where, you know, like, like so many places across what we now call the rust belt, it, it, it provided a nice middle-class lifestyle for, for a sizable number of families through manufacturing. Uh, after those jobs decamped in the, you know, beginning in the seventies into the eighties, uh, Williamsport really struggled. I mean, there are places that had it worse. The fact that it houses uh, two hospitals and two small colleges means that there are a sizable number of professional jobs compared to say Tioga County North of there where, where there's even less, but that said, you know, from the, from the sixties through to the two thousands, it lost uh, 50% of its population. It went from 45,000 to under 30,000 residents. Uh, you know, those manufacturing jobs were not replaced. And so it was kind of limping along before fracking, uh, like so much of, you know, the Midwest, the so-called heartland where there hadn't really been found a replacement, uh, of jobs that could sustain a family without a college degree. And nobody was moving there. People are moving away. Right. And so, so a lot of the folks that are there, almost everybody that's there are people that stayed very few people choosing to move to this region. Okay. And we're going to um, circle back to sort of the eco- economic transformation that happened mm-hmm. once, yeah. um, you know, that industry kind of moved in. But first, I, I sort of want to start introducing a few of the characters that are, you yeah. know, the families that you followed, because, mm-hmm. you know, having lived there that while you were doing this, you developed these relationships and and there were a lot of players and it's evident in the way that you describe people and talk about their experience and perspective that you formed these relationships. And one person, yeah. George, is mm-hmm. very prominently featured. And I want to talk a little bit more about his story later. But mm-hmm. but he kind of, to me, represented a, a way of life, uh, a philosophy and a psychology of the area when it comes mm-hmm. to sort of sovereignty and autonomy and mm-hmm. private land rights. You know, what do you think? So for those of us that live outside and we're like fracking is bad and how could these people do this? What do you think that, that people who don't live in these small rural communities like this one misunderstand about people like George? Yeah. 
So, so just to say a tiny bit about George, George Hagemeyer owns 77 acres that he inherited. Like a lot of people, it's an ancestral estate passed down to him from his parents. Uh, he himself is a retired custodian, worked at the nearby high school for almost 30 years, was living off a modest pension when Anna Darko approached him about signing a lease to put six natural gas wells in on his property. And so George leased his land and made uh, got a signing bonus uh, from from leasing his land and then earned monthly royalties. And so George, so that's just a bit about about the George that I met. When I met George, the wells were literally being drilled. The drilling rig was there, um, you know, doing its work. And uh, George is, you know, I mean, so I should say this area of Pennsylvania, while it's not the the center of Appalachia, it is part of the region of Appalachia. And why I think that's relevant is I do think that. So if you look at Republican versus Democrat, they're Republican. They went they went for Trump over 70 percent, the Lycoming County in both elections. But if you take a if you look more closely, a lot of folks I would call libertarian. They don't really view themselves as partisan, as that interested or dedicated to the Republican Party. And a lot of them, including George, are critical that the Republican Party has not actually stuck to principles of small, minimal government, um, you know, like not interfering in people's lives. Uh, they're not even on board with the culture, some of the culture wars in any way that they're restrictive on people's individual liberty. And so, so, and, and that's one of the things that historians have noted marks the Appalachian region, that there's this sort of isolationist, reclusive, live and let live, you know, people owning enough land that they often don't even have to deal with other people really. Um, and just kind of want to live this solitary, self-reliant, isolationist existence. And so there's this kind of pervasive distrust of bureaucracies of any kinds. So the federal government, but also state government, any agency or institution that would, you know, that, that, so like, you know, which would include environmental groups, uh, all sort of come in for distrust, right. In, in this way. And so George is someone who, you know, when I, he, he claims, I mean, I can't verify this, but he claims that he hasn't slept somewhere else. So overnighted somewhere else in over three decades, um, he would go weeks at a time without ever even leaving his property at all. And when he did leave, it was usually just to run basic errands. And so this is somebody who just wants to be by himself, wants to be left alone, doesn't believe what anybody else does is his business and damn well believes it's nobody else's business, what he does um, with his time, with his beliefs, with his land. And so when fracking came along, you know, I had asked him the first time I met him, well, you know, you can't really, you can't really drill on somebody's property without your neighbors being impacted. I mean, even if their water isn't poisoned, and again, that's the worst case scenario. It happens. It doesn't usually happen. But what does always happen is hundreds, if not thousands of big rig trucks going up and down gravel roads. Um, you know, when they frack a well, they have to burn the gas off before it's hooked to a pipeline. So flaring, which is louder than a jet engine, which is so bright that it blots out the night sky. Uh, there's all kinds of disturbances. And so I said, you know, well, did you talk to any of your neighbors? At least let them know that you leased your property, that they're going to be dealing with truck traffic, security guards closing down roads. And he said, no. It's none of their, it's none of their business. It's my property. I'll do as I want. Right. Let alone the planetary consequences, right. That leasing your land for drilling means right. contributing to global warming. Uh, it just, it, to George, it wasn't anybody else's business. And so, so, so that's, that's a bit about George. That's a bit about the mindset. So then when environmentalists came along uh, and they did, uh, you know, there were so-called fractivists, anti-fracking activists, um, people, people like George really, 
it wasn't just that they didn't agree with the message. They really distrusted them. And they felt like you're telling me what to do on my property. And that the answer to the problems of fracking is government regulation. Well, I don't trust government and I don't want the government telling me or anybody else what we can or can't do with our land. And so the simple fact that folks like, I mean, I won't say us because I don't know your politics, but me that believe that there needs to be strong top-down federal regulation to avert a climate catastrophe that we are already actually in, that in and of itself just doesn't go anywhere because they don't trust the government at all. They don't trust the government to solve problems. And right. so that's the kind of mindset of a lot of folks in this area. Well, and and we're going to kind of at the end, I want to circle back to kind of the irony of the what happened mm. with George mm-hmm. and as a result of his mindset, right? And that of yeah. many people in this area, but given their perspective and given this uh, philosophy or way of life, what elements of the gas and oil industry do you think resonated with people mm-hmm. in this community or even other small rural communities that that really kind of paved the way for them to lease their land for this extraction? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, one, I would say, I should say that to be clear, a lot of folks I met even if they were enthusiastic about leasing their land, this doesn't mean that they trusted or liked the oil and gas industry. So, so so so-called landmen, even if they're women, women, they're called landmen. um, (laughs) Of course they are. (laughs) Right. Independent contractors hired by oil and gas companies to knock on doors, like door to door salespeople uh, and, and, and make their pitch. And a lot of folks said, I didn't trust them. You know, I, I, they called them snake oil salesmen, whatever. Um, but they, they, so it's to say that there wasn't necessarily trust in the oil and gas industry, but, but certainly we could say, uh, this, this aligned interests, um, you know, that basically like, so, and George is a perfect example here. Again, George inherited the land. He himself was not working the land, but it used to be worked. A lot of people own ancestral land that was once farmed. Some of them might still be farming it, but not even making enough money. So also having a job, but then farming part-time. And so there was this, this idea that I've already alluded to of like this pride and self-reliance and the idea that the land is productive, uh, you know, and, and that, that was appealing. Um, and of course making money is appealing, but even more than that, that like, that, that, that like my land is being productive. Uh, there also was, I mean, the one sort of narrative that is a lot of baloney, but that people did did resonate with people was energy independence, right? That, that America can now be producing enough oil and gas mm-hmm. to, to, you know, that we don't have to be involved in the middle East and we can produce our own energy. And a lot of people do like that. That certainly jibes with nationalist, libertarian, conservative, uh, worldview. And so, so, uh, I, I don't know that people least primarily out of patriotism. I mean, the money was the thing but that resonated. Um, and, and so, so I think that, I think that those were some aspects. The last thing I'd say, this doesn't apply everywhere, but it does apply in the region that I wrote about. Um, there's something else, which is just, there's long been a history of vertical drilling, which is very unobtrusive compared to fracking. You basically just involve a few trucks. You poke a shallow hole thousand feet down, hope that there's a pocket of gas that escaped from the shale layer that you hit. And, and so a lot of folks, including George's parents, had leased for decades prior, leases $5 an acre, uh, nothing ever happened. 
um, because it was never worthwhile. And the few times that a vertical well was drilled, it was minimally invasive. And the, the, the oil and gas industry was actually able to rely on that history to basically make it seem like they were just doing the same thing. They didn't talk about hydraulic fracturing. They didn't talk about horizontal drilling. They just came and said, oh, I noticed that your property used to be leased and that the lease expired. Uh, we can offer you a new lease that pays better than that one. And basically allowed people's own perceptions based on this history to make them think that this would not be that invasive. Um, and so that was a, a ploy that the industry used that certainly I would argue is deceptive. I want to come back to the idea of culpability uh, a little mm -hmm. bit later. But one of the things I appreciated about Up to Heaven and Down to Hell was how um, how you dug into this conflict between individual property rights and the impact to others. So you were, you know, you brought that up when you said how you asked George, did you talk to your neighbors, you know, yeah. and this is really exploiting a common good when we think about energy. And I think first, like it would be helpful to talk about what are common goods so that everybody knows what we mean when we're talking about right. common resources. Sure. So, so two big ones are, uh, let's say in this region under un groundwater, because again, everybody is relying on well water. So they're just poking a hole in your backyard or usually you didn't when you bought the house if it's already constructed and you are relying on water being there. And, and so, but if every, you can imagine that if these areas had five, 10 times as many houses, they'd use up all that water. Or you can imagine something like fracking that could contaminate that water. Other common goods would be air, right? That the air you breathe is not so toxic that it makes you sick. That is a scarce good that if everybody, you know, burned all of their trash in their backyard, you would destroy this common good. Uh, we can think of other common goods like roads, right? I mean, we all pay taxes that, but that's a good that we all use. And, uh, you know, and, and I would also say here, uh, these are perhaps more abstract, but what, what a lot of people appreciate about, about the area are things like being able to see the night sky that there's so not enough, you know, there's not so much light pollution that you can't see the night sky that it's quiet. So-called rural character that, you know, people don't like here, don't like the city. They don't like industrial areas, but every time you introduce a new gas well, you introduce more industry, more trucks, uh, pipelines. And so over time that degrades the rural character, flaring degrades the night sky, right? Um, fracking can degrade the groundwater, um, in that way. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so, so then it's, it's very interesting because what you talk about in the book is this sort of conflict between individual property rights and autonomy yeah. and want to do what I want with my land and nobody can mm -hmm. tell me not to. And then, um, you, you know, it was striking how some people experienced no consequences while others mm -hmm. couldn't even drink their water anymore. So I'm thinking of Scott yeah. McLean's story. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so where do the rights of the individual, I know this is sort of more of a philosophical kind of question, but oh, you, great. you tackle it in the book, which mm -hmm. I think is really Absolutely. important. You know, where do the rights of individuals stop, especially when it involves a common mm -hmm. good and extraction is damaging it both locally and I mean, and, and never mind globally, but let's just say locally to other common goods. And this sort of mm -hmm. ambient experience was one that we can't quite put an, a, a dollar amount to. Right. So, I mean, where, where do you, what do you think about that? Sure. So, so 
One thing I'd say, and actually maybe this is a good time to talk about where the title of the book comes from. So America is the only country in the world where individuals own the mineral rights, or at least they commonly do. They can be severed from the surface. Uh, we, it is in American common law, this phrase, whoever owns the soil, it is theirs up to heaven and down to hell. Uh, the up to heaven part was taken away when we invented plane travel, <laughs> because basically, you know, the government was like, oh, the U.S. government was like, we got to figure this out. What are we going to do? Like pay everybody to be able to use the sky. So basically air rights got shrunk way down after air travel, but mineral rights never did. And so we are the only country in the world where the most common form of property ownership includes everything under the surface. So what that means is individuals can make a decision when the landman knocks on your door, you can make a decision to lease your land for gas drilling and make money from it. In almost every other country in the world, the government owns the mineral rights. And so an individual can't make that choice, nor can an individual directly profit from that choice. They might indirectly profit through lower taxes or more jobs. But so we have the most, I call it the maximalist definition of property rights of any country in the world. Um, and so and in that sense, I say, you know, I, the way I think about it, is, it, this is too simplistic, but I think it gets the point across. We treat property rights like free speech in a way, like what you do on your land, including above it and below it is your business. Right. And we put the fewest restrictions of any country on that. However, the whole reason we do that with free speech is that while it can offend other people, you, you, you know, saying what you want to say does not stop me from saying what I want to say, right? The whole basis of which we normally draw the boundary around individual liberties in this country is the extent that they don't stop other people from enjoying those same liberties. So that's as a country where we've drawn the boundaries. So, so you know, free speech, uh, love who you want to love, worship how you want to worship. The reason why all those things are, are, are protected is because they are deemed to be private. You worshiping how you want to worship does not affect my private worshiping, right? We treat property rights similarly, but we shouldn't. And we shouldn't, as I've already alluded to, because it's not actually, you know, George didn't have to ask anybody else, but then his neighbors got notices in their mailbox that they can't use their driveway certain days out of the week between 7 a.m. and 4 p.m. because heavy trucks are going to be moving in and out. There's a drilling rig camped out in his backyard for days at a time, uh, you know, with all this noise, with all these trucks, uh, you know, and again, other people fared even worse with contaminated water. And so, so what I say is there needs to be a mechanism that people who are impacted by that choice have a say in the matter. It's really hard to think about exactly what that boundary is, but we actually have a lot of models. If you think about zoning, for instance, um, every, you know, many towns and municipalities have zoning. And if you, if, and so for instance, if you zone a portion of a town or of a county residential, then normally what that means is you don't allow certain things that are considered to be incompatible with residential use. So you don't allow a factory in a residential area. Uh, and, and the same thing happens across the heartland areas are zoned rural. And there's an idea that when an area is zoned rural, you want to protect the so-called rural character, which is actually written in the zoning code, the rural character. So then decisions are made. Even if you're a private landowner, you say, I want to put a parking lot here for whatever reason you want to put a parking lot in. And the, you know, the, the township can say no, because that's inconsistent with the rural character of the region. So there are actually a lot of times where we restrict private property rights based on a public good, whether that's preserving the residential character or the rural character. And this, this is the rub with fracking. Pennsylvania did this, Colorado did this, Texas did this. 
conservative legislatures that were really eager for this industry to get in there and to get, you know, to, 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 to want to facilitate fracking took away municipalities' ability to control fracking through zoning. So they put a ban on fracking bans. So it used to be that towns in Texas and Colorado could decide locally if they wanted to ban an industry. That's their home rule right, state constitutional right. Conservative legislatures took that away. When a, when a, when a township in, in Pennsylvania, Grant Township, put in a ban on so-called injection wells where, where wastewater is injected deep underground. This is what's been linked to her to not hurricanes, to earthquakes, by the way. Uh, it's not actually fracking. It's the wastewater injection wells. Um, and so Grant Township created a home rule charter that banned them. And they were sued not only by a company that wanted to put in injection well, they were sued by their own Department of Environmental Protection. The agency that is supposed to be ensuring that people have a right to clean air and water sued them. And it's, it claimed that the that towns have no state constitutional right to regulate fracking. Only the state does. And so that's where actually, so, so there's this unusual thing where municipalities can use zoning to control almost every other industry, but they've been limited in their ability to use it to control fracking. And so I can't give you a broad answer. I mean, personally, to be perfectly blunt, I do think fracking should be banned. I mean, it's, we need to leave fossil fuel on the ground to avert catastrophic climate change. The thing is, so Biden can't do it. Trump basically wanted to just like, you know, help win Free the election by peddling, by peddling this lie. But by peddling this lie, Biden's going to ban fracking. Biden can only ban fracking on federally owned lands which is a very small percentage of total lands, right? And so it's this is the last thing I'll say about it. It's why I can't give you a general answer of like where we should draw that boundary because what I do think how it's been done with other industries and how I think it, there's the best chance of it happening with fracking is at municipal levels where towns decide what they think is worth protecting, the rural character, the residential character, and how they draw that boundary. But it's just to say that across America, we have thousands of examples of towns figuring this out with everything from a liquor license to where you can place a cell phone tower to where you can place a bakery or a parking lot. Well, I mean, and I think it's interesting that you say that there was a there, there was that local government that actually denied the permits and the state overruled. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. and so what's interesting to me, too, that that kind of struck me when I was listening to you is that when you made that analogy with free speech, we do have limits on free speech. It can't yeah. cause harm. Right. To right. others. Mm-hmm. Physical threat, essentially. Right. right? And That's right. And, and so by one could make a very direct analogy that at least with respect to polluting the water, right. Mm-hmm. Or, or poisoning the water of your neighbor, you actually are violating their individual property rights, right? right? Because it's yeah. cause it can cause physical material harm to them. And so they yep. shouldn't be able to make decisions that cause physical, like we have even in, I mean, I remember in Flagstaff, Arizona, I study prairie dogs. So, you know, you were talking about pigeons mm. as pests, you know, boy, prairie dogs is mm. one species where, uh, you know, that, that certainly are, they're demonized. So I chose my research sites for my PhD after learning the hard way for my master's within a quarter mile of a home because you couldn't discharge a gun. So whatever your, you know, how broadly, um, you know, uh, open you are to using guns in a, any particular state, there are still mm-hmm. regulations that don't allow yeah. you to discharge yeah. uh, the, I mean, unless you're defending yourself in your home. 
uh, within a quarter mile of a residence because mm-hmm. of the potential to cause harm to another individual. And so it's yeah. very interesting to me that there isn't this sort of connection being made or a challenge right. being made uh, yeah. by local governments, you know, and uh, who want to implement a ban. And so, so that really strikes me. And, and, but it does speak to, I think this, so I'm going to try to tie the thread here to this idea of commodification of nature, um, Mm. because you kind of touch on that a little bit. And, and really what this did was create an economic transformation for this community. So before I kind of dive into commodification of nature Mm -hmm. and, and tackle that conversation, what did you see was the economic benefit for yeah. folks in this community as a result of, of opening their land to fracking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, uh, because in the book, I tell a lot of these bigger issues. I talk about a lot of these bigger issues through, uh, stories of individuals. Let's, we could talk about George, uh, you know, George. So for instance, for allowing a six inch diameter pipeline, to be buried across this field, which once it's buried, you don't know it's there unless it explodes. But if, if presuming that doesn't happen, uh, he got $60,000 for that. Uh, he thought he got royalties off the gas wells under, you know, once they started producing his first check, which is for just one month of production was $34,000. Now production goes down after the first year a lot, but that's serious money. So some people, you know, there's this term shalionaire where some people make enough money to become millionaires. Most don't. A lot of people lease their land. They get a one-time leasing bonus of a couple thousand dollars, depending on the size and how much they get per acre. Uh, but you know, petroleum companies basically lease everybody and then they decide where it makes sense to drill. And so a lot of people get the one-time bonus, don't get royalties, but you don't know that in advance. So, so people hope, a lot of people hope it's going to be life-changing money. And for some people like George, it was. For most people, it wasn't life-changing, but it was certainly couple hundred dours a month if you're getting a small amount of royalties or hey even nine thousand dollars for for you know leasing a couple of acres one-time bonus payment you know that that buys a lot of Christmas presents or or pays off a credit card bill um, so those were the benefits to individuals there's also I mean this was interesting about living in Williamsport there was this kind of momentary boom that happened so I, as I mentioned you know new industrial parks were built like for Halliburton oil field services uh, there five new hotels were built to house. So, so many oil and gas workers were migrating up from Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado to work on the drilling rigs or pipelines that, that they built new hotels for them. Uh, then they built, you know, then there was new, uh, Texas barbecue restaurants to appeal to these people from Texas coming up that want their Texas barbecue, you know, so so there were these, these economic benefits in that way that led a lot of people to talk about it as a boom. I'll just say quickly, the bus came a lot quicker than it did for lumber. At least lumber was like a 25 year boom. This was a boom of less than two years. Uh, you know, it was not, I mean, I mean, literally the ribbon cutting on the last hotel was happening. By the time that was happening, there was already occupancy issues with the hotels that were open. Uh, hotel tax revenue was already down. There was, you know, and there, and we now know at the time that, that the peak what came in 2012 and, and, you know, I mean, the boom only started in 2010. So you're really talking about just like a two year boom that Halliburton facility by 2016, it had 600 employees. It was down to 40. So, so, so the boom didn't really last a lot of the jobs that were there were actually, and this is indicated by the hotels. were not new jobs for locals. They were people cycling up from existing oil fields in the Midwest. 
And so, so those were, you know, so it's to say that I do think that I'm actually writing an essay about this right now. The idea that it actually brought like jobs and a lot of economic benefits to, to a region is, is not, is almost not true at all. I mean, there's some cases, but individual landowners certainly did get benefits, although many, not as much as they would have hoped. Okay. Well, and you, you mentioned that, that basically everybody leased their, their yeah. land. And so talk to me a little bit about Cindy Bauer, um, mm-hmm. because right. There's this contradiction between living as a human and caring deeply about the environment and, and, and still leasing your land. Yeah. Yeah. So Cindy Bauer is, uh, probably the most dedicated environmentalist that I know. She, uh, so she she is married to a man who made a lot of money in the hotel business, which means that she doesn't have to have a normal full-time job. Her job is environmentalism. She was a major player in a lawsuit that sued the state of Pennsylvania for diverting revenues from leasing state public land for drilling and using it for the general fund of the state. That was a successful lawsuit. She's a member of the Responsible Drilling Alliance, which was advocating, you know, against gas drilling in the state. She participated in the very first Earth Day all the way back in the 70s uh, and, and, and donates money to a lot of environmental causes. Um, and, and so and also she and her husband own a beautiful 150 acre estate that they put a conservation easement on to ensure that nothing could ever be built. It, it, you know, it's 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 a mixture of, of forest and fields and the side of a mountain. And so gas drilling comes along. She doesn't lease. The landman comes again. She doesn't lease. The landman comes again. She doesn't lease. She's advocating against drilling locally and nationally. And in the meantime, her little tiny bucolic hamlet of Trout Run is transformed into a gritty mining town right across the small street from her. And by the way, a street that is pockmarked with so many potholes from these trucks that like you, you could barely even drive down. You could destroy your car uh, is, a, is a well pad. And there's, and you know, I was, it was being, they literally cut into and cut off the side of a mountain to build this well pad. Uh, while they're drilling, there's a so-called man camp where dozens of trailers with, with men living in them are there around the clock, hundreds of big rig trucks coming and going flaring. That's so loud that she's cl- you know closing her windows and trying to sleep with earplugs, but still can't sleep because of the flaring. Uh, and, 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 and basically it becomes a full-time job to be calling the gas company to complain about all the quality of life issues she's dealing with calling her state representatives, nothing happening. And so eventually what happens is she leases and she's quick to point out that she signed a really restrictive so-called non-surface disturbance agreement. So again, you can horizontally drill for two miles underground, deep underground. So the lease she signed doesn't allow them to do anything to the surface of her property. It only allows them to access a mile underneath the ground from somebody else's property. Right. And so, so in that regard, you know, it was actually consistent and harmonized with the conservation easement on the property. And, you know, she recognizes and lost sleep over the contradictions of doing so. But what she realizes two things, you know, one, her holding out didn't do anything um, as far as everybody around her least. So she watched all of these trucks move in. She's seeing drilling rigs on all sides of her. Um, you know, the, the beautiful landscape that she loved basically disappears. The night sky is blotted out by all this industrial activity, flaring lights from the drill rigs and other equipment. And so and she can't get anybody to do anything, the gas company or her, the state representatives. And so she feels like a fool. 
She's like, here I am. And I'm just, I'm holding out, but nobody notices. I haven't stopped fracking from happening and I'm owed something like, you know, and just like, I mean, in lawsuits, basically in civil suits, the only way you actually get anything is money, right? You win a lawsuit, you get some kind of recompense. She, in the long run, she eventually came to think of signing this restrictive lease, which wouldn't affect the surface of the property as payment of damages for the quality of life degradation that she's already experienced for years. And so that's, that's, that's what she did. That's how she thought of it. She basically came to feel like a fool for not even taking the money while she's still dealing with all the consequences of it. Right. Well, it's interesting because then that makes me want to talk now about this sort of commodification of nature, right? Because I mean, this is just a mindset and it's the typical economic model. Also, when it comes to damages to your quality of life Um, and and we've relied on it being heavily anthropocentric where where I mean, in this case, only humans matter. And one one of the things that you wrote, which which I really I'm going to read it uh, if it's okay mm-hmm. is uh, that that private is public in the aggregate our personal lifestyle choices trespass on the sovereignty of others and I would argue that others includes other species and mm-hmm. right and that that this is a non anthropocentric model so it's humans and others not just mm-hmm. only humans. Um, mm-hmm. And so did the impact to the broader others uh, beyond, say, Cindy Bauer, even occur mm-hmm. to people in this community? I mean, I know someone noticed all the trout disappeared, yeah. um, mm-hmm. but, but so was there any thought to there's the sovereignty of others in terms of other species, trees yeah. and animals and, um, you know, that other environment that yeah. must be considered? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm trying not to laugh just because (laughs) at least the typical landowner there, I don't think I would say no. And I don't think it would occur to them that, uh, you know, to think about animals as non-human animals as having sovereignty. I mean, certainly there were, I mean, Cindy Bauer actually talked in this way. Others, you know, the Responsible Drilling Alliance is a very small, but very active anti-drilling group. And a number of folks, Barb Jamaska, who has been the president for a number of years there, uh, owned a health food store for a long time, constantly talk about sovereignty of other non-human animals. And they were often the first thing she talked and still talks about as far as the impact, but that's an incredibly small group of people. You're talking about like a dozen people, you know, where, where, where I think there's some opening, although people would never talk about it as far as direct sovereignty of other living biota, but at least as far as it impacted their ability to enjoy and connect with the environment was this leasing on, on public land. So back in 2008 to 10, there was a auction bonanza. Uh, and again, fracking, just to be clear, fracking has been, has had bipartisan support until very recently. So it was a democratic governor, Ed Rendell, that leased almost 140,000 acres of state land for gas drilling, uh, reaping $413 million for, for the general fund of the state. And since then there's been entire areas, regions of state forests that have been decimated. I mean, they, they've been turned into mining towns and the big event that I spend a whole chapter on in the book was that the loyal sock state forest is an area that is really beloved because it's close to town. So it's not remote. It's easy to get to. And if you drive there, there's a beautiful stream that uh, has some swimming pools that also has the most trout of any stream nearby, the clearest, purest water that you can literally just drive and park and walk to after you get out of your car in like 30 seconds. And so it's really easily accessible. 
nature, right? Which means it's really popular. And the Responsible Drilling Alliance discovered that this area had been leased uh, for development and uh, actually not even leased, bought. Anadarko bought the mineral rights. They didn't just lease them. And this, and actually it was, drilling was eminent. So the, the stakes, so the stakes were already in the ground for where up to 26 well pads were going to be placed. And a well pad is four to five acres. So every one of them is four to five acres clearing out the forest. Now all of those have to be connected with pipelines. A six inch diameter pipeline requires a 120 foot right of way. So imagine like God coming down with a lawnmower and just mowing a huge strip of the forest. It has to stay that way. Uh, and of course, then gravel, tiny gravel access roads being turned into truck highways, right? And so when this became public, people were pissed, including people that liked fracking and, and leased their land. But this was this was their place to go to fish, to uh, you know, to jump in a swimming pool, an out, you know, a natural swimming pool. And people uh saw the issue. They saw and thought it was wrong that this piece of public land that by virtue of being Pennsylvania residents, they quote owned, at least in part, was going to be drilled for profit. And, and so that's where the responsible drill alliance was able to get traction when they publicized the issue, huge hearings that attracted hundreds of people, including a lot of libertarian minded, you know, uh, landowners, farmers who were upset about what was happening. And they actually did now it could still happen, but it's a decade later almost and drilling has still not happened. So it's one of the most successful mobilizations to stop drilling on state land. And I did see this as a moment where people see, and you see this with a lot of Americans more broadly that kind of may not be environmentalists, but at least think that like the Grand Canyon ought not be messed with, for instance. Right. But so, so, so here you, you know, it was people, I saw that people did see the sort of state public lands as treasures that, um, that ought not be drilled. And so even a lot of people that supported fracking, if you look at surveys, people that say, yes, I support fracking still the majority of them say, I don't support it on public lands. And so that's the one place where I think they saw it. Well, and the irony there is that what they may not realize is that forest lands in particular, state forest land and federal forest land, that whole model of those lands is actually for resource extraction now and into the future. And so it's ironic right? That they have a belief that those lands should not be mined when the very structure that put those lands in place was for mining and timber and recreation. So to actually fundamentally prevent the Grand Canyon is a national park. So that's different, Mm -hmm. but forest lands are their whole purpose and definition is for extraction of resources. And so I wonder if there's a way to change that because they will potentially ultimately mm-hmm. lose um, yeah. that fight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, I mean, you're right. And, and, and the public forests in Pennsylvania at the time I was there were being timbered. Um, you know, these are so-called working forests. I think uh, you know, fracking, I think I can say objectively that fracking is far more visible and ecologically destructive than at least what people had seen in their lifetime with prior extractive activities in the forest. Um, and so, but you're absolutely right. And I think that's an important clarification that especially on the state level, almost all state forests are so-called working forests. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it just speaks to like, it's, it's interesting that their concern comes really, really strong when it's this public land that they see as they own. Yeah. When the actual Mm -hmm. land that they own, they turned over their, their rights to that land in Mm -hmm. many ways. 
I'm curious because there's some new research showing that um, there is a decision making model that can still achieve economic extraction with some spectrum of constraints that allows, um, you know, sort of like on a, a dial, how much money versus how much um, environmental protection. Mm-hmm. And do yeah. you think that for some of these people, maybe not all of them, but for some of these people, do you think that if there was an economic model presented to them, uh, uh, you know, uh, for extraction that allowed them to properly assess the cost mm-hmm. benefits to themselves, their mm-hmm. families, their neighbors mm-hmm. and others, whether it's hu- non-human or non-living like water. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that they would have still leased? That's a, you know, that's a tough question. Part of the reason why I like being an ethnographer is that it's not abstract. Like I look at what people actually do, right. uh, you know, but I'm, I'm happy to speculate with you. You know, I have to say that, unfortunately, I do think a lot of them would have leased. And I, I think that, but it doesn't mean that they wouldn't have been concerned at all about uh, or been well open to more restrictions than currently exist. So for instance, I mean, I'd already talked about how, Pennsylvania basically forced towns to allow fracking as long as as long as a gas well meets the state requirements, which is very minimal, like 500 feet from the nearest drinking water source, even though the wells have been water wells have been contaminated as far away as four or five thousand feet. Right. So what what every every gas well that is going to be drilled still requires a permit hearing. The irony is that it can't actually be overturned. So people would turn up at these permit hearings thinking this is like a liquor license. Like you actually, if enough people say can convince you that adding one more liquor license to the town will, will increase the risk of public safety, then you, then a town can reject it in Pennsylvania anyway. So people would turn up and they would say, you know, adding all those trucks, this is an area near a school that this is, you know, this is going to be only a thousand feet from my drinking water source. Here's some studies. And then in the end, the board of supervisors still had to approve it because it met all the state requirements. And so it's to say that I saw in these moments that even if people didn't want to say fracking ought to be banned, they were turning out and saying, you know, I do think that there ought to be greater restrictions, greater considerations put into place here. It's just, and and, and so it, it couldn't happen. It legally could not happen. And so there's where I did see people turning up stating concerns and actually being really frustrated that they were not able to have their concerns voiced and be taken into account where, for instance, maybe the board of supervisors would be able to say, okay, we're going to allow this well, but you have to set it further away from this person's drinking water. You can't allow the trucks on the road while the school is open. Right? Like that's the kinds of things that a lot of people wanted and I think if they were allowed to have more local control would have pushed for those kinds of things. Um, I don't think they would have pushed for not le- for banning leasing or they would have not leased their own land. Um, but I do think that they would have at least had, you know, had those kinds of restrictions and concerns. There well, was concern for the public good in that way. Okay. And that's encouraging at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, it busted right after two plus years and yeah. In the interim, people like George signed away the thing that meant the most to him, which was his Mm -hmm. autonomy over his land. 
Yeah. Right. And he wrote about that a mm-hmm. lot and, and, and his, you know, realization essentially of, yeah. of what he actually did. And yeah. that's where it's sort of, you know, if you're told, okay, you get this economic benefit for minimum yeah. two years and the price is actually this, sure. Would you do it? And so if we're, if we're to trace sort of the culpability, right. And identify who's responsible for what Mm -hmm. has happened, not just to the land, uh, but to this community, where do you think it leads us? Who's actually culpable? Yeah. Uh, so before I answer that question, I'll just say the, the the first part, I think I misinterpreted your last question a little bit as far as yes. So for instance, so George, Came to my class. I invited him there to talk about, to provide a pro fracking perspective. He showed up and said, I wish it didn't happen. Um, I, you know, they treated me, they treat me like I don't have any rights. And so George, if George would have known how it isn't so much about the environmental impact, but about that he's a tenant on his own property. So there's a security guard there that tells him you can't come in right now because heavy truck traffic, it's not there anymore, but it was there, right? Uh, They put a security camera on his yard. He didn't know about it. They told him he can't walk across the well pad to because even though that's on his property and they said he'd be arrested if he did it. And so those, I do think that in that way, it's not so much like, you know, the, the trees that were cut down or the water, but that loss of sovereignty, George at least says he wouldn't have done it. And so I think that that's an important point that you brought up that I didn't, that I didn't, um, get to. And now as far as ultimate culpability, I don't blame almost anybody that leased their land. I mean, I do think that, you know, that, that, that of course that sets everything in motion, but you know, most lessors were led to believe that the impact would be minimal, that you would hardly know that they were there once they were done drilling, uh, you know, and, and so people did not know or think that, that they were going to have this major impact on the community. Um, and also from the simple fact that, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a well-worn statistic now, but something like just a hundred companies, almost all of them petroleum companies are responsible for 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And those are all the players involved here. And we now know that not only are they, you know, making a profit off of a product that is destroying the planet, but that they have been systematically engaged in deflection and denialism when their own research showed them as early as the 1980s that what they were doing was contributing to global warming. The same sorts of things happening with burying research and data that demonstrates that the integrity of wells, you know, can break down. Uh, they, these gas companies. So we haven't even touched on, I don't touch on it much in the book, but orphan wells, there are tens of thousands of abandoned oil and gas wells that have been drilled over the past 50 years that the companies that own them have just left them. And they are leaking oil and gas and other toxins into groundwater, into the air. And they're just completely ignored by these companies. And so certainly I think that the petroleum companies are, are ultimately responsible. Um, and of course, hand in hand with with mostly conservative politicians who have been all too happy to be partners in allowing this to happen. Most infamously, the so-called Halliburton loophole that Vice President Dick Cheney put into the Energy Act. He was the former CEO of Halliburton, the biggest oil-filled executive company, which put into an energy bill this exemption of fracking from the Clean Drinking Water Act, which would have been the primary way that the Environmental Protection Agency would have regulated fracking and been able to go after industry for contaminating drinking water. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't know that. And I think, uh, you know, that doesn't surprise me, you know, that that loophole was put in place. Uh, now when we think about Williamsport, can it rebrand itself? 
And what can it look like now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy answer. I mean, I do think, as I mentioned, you know, Williamsport is at least better off than some surrounding communities. Uh, it, you know, it's got, it's got two local colleges. It has two hospitals. It also, because there's a federal court there, there's a sort of small cottage industry of lawyers. And so those will always be there. I don't know that you rebrand yourself around those things in a way that, that will attract a lot of outsiders, but I do think that, um, you know, those, those, those professions have been there long before fracking and they're, they're going to be there long after the one thing that people have talked about trying to brand is, is around recreation tourism of the parts of the state forest that have not been decimated around fracking. I mean, you know, last decade, there was a group that a conservation group that, that in partnership with the department of conservation and natural resources identified parts of eight state forest that they called the Pennsylvania wilds, which are, is they called the largest contiguous stretch of forests east of the Mississippi. And so there was this whole campaign around the Pennsylvania wilds and this idea of what, you know, this is the most kind of contiguous rugged wilderness you're going to get unless you go out West. Right. Um, unfortunately, fracking, fracking has fragmented that. Um, now, if you look at the Pennsylvania wilds, uh, website, they don't reference that largest contiguous, you know, because they can't, but there's still a lot of beautiful places left. And there's still a lot of folks who travel from at least, you know, Pittsburgh and Philly and, and commonly from New York city and other places to, to kayak, swim, fish, hunt, uh, stay in very affordable, um, you know, cottages along Creek and in the woods. And I think that, um, I'm not going to act like that's going to be a major economic engine, but I do think that it probably offers the biggest potential as far as branding. You brand yourself as we are a city. I mean, it's a city with microbreweries and like art galleries. They have a first Friday where people come out and stay late and there's music. So there's not nothing. And so I think you can have a pleasant time staying in town and having a bit of culture, but then driving out for 10 or 15 minutes and kayaking and swimming and hiking in the woods. And I think that um, as far as a rebranding, and I know there are efforts from some conservation minded people to make that the rebranding of Williamsport. Well, and you know, maybe there's something there for, for George when, when the leases are gone and, and those, um, I don't know if the structures can ever be removed, having a whole nother perspective on what his land can mean for himself and mm. for others. But before I let you go, I have one yeah. more question. Um, and that is when you're not writing and researching and moving to small cities in uh, Pennsylvania, how do you connect with nature? What's the vehicle for wow. you? Well, it, that's a great question. And there, I would, I would give two answers because I split my time these days between New York city and upstate New York or the Hudson Valley. And, uh, when I'm in the city, I love to connect to, to nature through, uh, the animals that live there. I mean, I wrote a book about pigeons and I, one thing I call pigeons and other animals like them, I call them pedestrian animals, pedestrian because they're common. And also because they literally sit on benches, walk on sidewalks and occupy the streets and the sidewalks. And I, and because of that, my kids love the squirrels and the pigeons and observing all of the everyday animals in the city that most people don't care about because they're 
common. And, 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 and so, so, uh, you know, I love to, to observe and connect with, with those animals. And also of course, to, to connect with the, the parks and go along the, the Hudson river. When we're in the Hudson Valley, uh, my, my, I have two young boys. They love to talk about going on nature adventures. We will, you know, take a morning or an afternoon and take three to five hours and go to uh, an area nearby, uh, often Minnewaska state park. And it's great about that. You know, my younger one's only two. He can't really hike, but they have carriage roads there. So I can bring the stroller and I can get them to do the older one. The six-year-old will walk. I can do about eight miles with them um, walking and, you know, just getting out there and um, observing, you know, like identifying different kinds of trees, listening for birds and just generally being out. Um, so, so definitely getting out in the state forests that are, that are, that abound up here in upstate New York. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I think that um, what I what I really enjoyed about that was the, the sharing the multitude of ways that we mm. can connect with nature. It doesn't have to mm -hmm. be out in some remote area. And and maybe yeah. that's what, you know, I like about what you were saying about this kind of movement to try to bring people to Williamsport for a mm -hmm. different reason, you know, to connect yeah. with the environment around them. And and so listen, everybody. Uh, I would get a copy of Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. It's a fantastic book. And I appreciated you sharing where the title came from because I didn't know uh, that it was sort of this idea of individual property rights go up to mm -hmm. heaven and down to mm -hmm. hell. Thank you so much for being here and for talking about your amazing book. Thanks. It was really great talking with you. Do other species have autonomy? Do they have a right to live and pursue their livelihoods? I was going to tackle this question on Independence Day, but well, I got sidetracked by prairie dogs, a topic for another show. However, when we think about what happened in this one community regarding the destruction first of the quality of life for others, next, the safety of the drinking water for some, and ultimately, the loss of sovereignty over one's land in exchange for what amounts to a pittance of its value to other species and our own lives. Now magnify that by the globe and we see what's happening in a place like British Columbia. When temperatures soared to 123 degrees during the week of June 26th, not only did the land spontaneously combust and lead to the loss of an entire village, but over 1 billion, you heard that, 1 billion, Clams, mussels, and starfish, as well as a slew of other sea creatures, were boiled alive, cooked to death in the blistering heat. Water has a high specific heat, so even if it takes a little bit longer to warm up, once it does, it holds that heat for much, much longer. I think about all those animals living their lives, trying to do the best they can to pursue their goals of survival in the midst of the mess we have made on the planet only to be boiled alive. If you don't think that's our future, think again. But where's the culpability? You and I, like those people in Pennsylvania, may not be able to stop it, but we can certainly decide where to put our money, and more importantly, who to put into office. And if you think this doesn't affect you, wait until you're scrambling for water. Wait until they poison your water. Actually, they already have. Wait until the coastal resources you depend on boil. And then, well, then it will be too late. And all of those billionaires pissing away money on their little rockets, thinking that heaven is somewhere else, could be doing something to prevent the hell that is happening right here on Earth. Whew, 
I am feeling something fierce about all of this, and it's largely because all of those animals were dying, boiled alive. And if you don't see the connection, then you're part of the problem. All right, that's all for this week. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and share it so others can enjoy it and find it too. You can follow the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Wild Connect Pod. Thanks for listening.